Thanks for tuning in to the Sun Also Rises radio show and podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Jacques. The Lus Plateau in China stretches across about 250,000 square miles in the northern part of the country. Anciently, this was a lush area of forests and natural grasslands, rife with all kinds of vegetation and life, and the abundance of this area made it attractive to people. So the Lus Plateau grew very populous, and it became really the cradle of Chinese civilization. It was the center of power and affluence in ancient China. The Han Dynasty, the Qin, and the Tang were all three based in this area. And as more and more people began to populate the region, and as the population density increased, they cleared more of the land. The civilization was growing, but so was the demand for resources. So the people were aggressively farming the land. They were overgrazing their livestock on it, especially goats. And as the food became more scarce, the goats would pull whatever vegetation they could find up by the roots. They would eat all of it. So over the course of hundreds or even thousands of years, all of this activity ended up stripping away the vegetation almost entirely. And it ended up leading to some serious erosion of the soil, and eventually it turned the Lus Plateau into basically a desert. As this was happening, many of the people migrated out of the area that they had depleted. And what they left behind was just a barren ruin. It was one of the most fundamentally degraded ecosystems on Earth. In 1995, when we began our documentation of the Lus Plateau, we found a landscape that was virtually denuded of vegetation. That's Dr. John Liu there, speaking in his documentary that he made about the Lus Plateau. Dr. Liu was born in Nashville, Tennessee, to a Chinese father and an American mother. And he has devoted much of his life to studying ecology, and specifically what to do with desert areas, like the Lus Plateau was when he first began documenting it in the mid-1990s. There were virtually no trees on this entire vast plateau at this time, and very, very little grass. The whole landscape had been eroded down to just the bones. The flesh and the muscle and the sinew of the land, so to speak, that had all been washed away, and only the dry, dry bones of the earth remained. When there was wind, you'd find your mouth full of dust, Nothing kept the dust down, so it would blow for miles and miles. This would actually cause dust storms far from the Lus Plateau. Even in far-off cities like Beijing and Shanghai, these dust storms were causing serious disruptions. And when the rains came on the Lus Plateau, they didn't seep into the earth the way rain does in a healthy ecosystem, because the soil was just too depleted. And there was no vegetation to hold it, especially on slopes. So the rain just washed down the hillsides, taking soil with it. Huge gullies ran thick with eroded soils. It was actually believed to be the most eroded place on earth. And since this was happening over such a vast area, it was washing millions of tons of silt into the Yellow River. That's actually why the Yellow River is named as it is. 
It just had so much of that yellow-colored, lust soil in its waters that that became the river's distinguishing characteristic. And all that silt was regularly clogging the river. It was blocking its flow and causing floods in some areas, even far downstream from the Lust Plateau. These floods have devastated parts of the river basin for generations, and when the river flooded during the rainy season without ordinary infiltration, that very often meant that there would be droughts during the rest of the year, and those droughts often caused famine. So all of this is why the Yellow River earned the nickname China's Sorrow. So with the dust storms and the flooding and the droughts, the local problem of the Lust Plateau had become a national problem for China. The masses of people may have thought that they left the destruction behind, but it was following them. In the mid-1990s, Chinese and foreign scientists and civil engineers surveyed this area, and they knew that it used to be home to millions and millions of people and just a very lush and productive region. So they wanted to see if there was anything that could be done to restore the land. They wanted to rehabilitate this watershed. Now, when we came to this place in the Lois Plateau the first time, we were all really shocked. You know, we thought, how can, how can ever anybody try to rehabilitate an area that is so huge and so fundamentally destroyed ecologically? That's Jürgen Vogel, a German national with the World Bank. He was one of the foreigners who was brought in to try to help repair this collapsed ecosystem. And as he says there, they were all daunted going in just to see the scope of this undertaking. But they pushed through this initial shock. And here is John Liu once again explaining how they proceeded from there. To undertake something so complex and so massive requires very careful planning. The planning team evaluated the plateau from both a macro and a micro perspective. The macro perspective was achieved by using geographical information systems to map the entire plateau and by giving each watershed a unique address. The micro perspective was acquired by participatory assessment that was then compiled into databases to learn exactly what the local people understood and what had worked in communities that had more success in protecting their environment. So there were some people who had remained at the Lust Plateau, several hundred thousand, and most of them were stuck in a cycle of poverty and ecological destruction. This was a cycle that had passed from generation to generation. So Jürgen Vogel and the other individuals who were trying to restore this area they first had to persuade these locals. They had to convince them that it would be best in the long term to keep their goats and cattle and sheep from grazing. So they had to convince them to give the land some time and space to recover. That's a very difficult message to get through to locals who depend on livestock for their livelihood. And many of the people did not understand the point. They just didn't see how it would be possible for them to keep off the land. Here's John Liu once again explaining how that part of the obstacle was overcome. What eventually convinced the local people was the assurance that they would have tenure of their land, that they would directly benefit from the effort they invested in the new project. 
the project leaders used some, what I think is some pretty interesting language and analogies to uh, help to convey to the locals what exactly they were trying to accomplish. They explained that the objective was to give the hills a hat on top and a belt in the middle and shoes at the bottom. So the hat would be trees planted up there on the tops of the hills. The belt would be terraces that they would carve into the sides of the hills, level plains there, um, which would slow down the flow of water and let it soak into the soil. And then the shoes would be dams built at the bottom to keep the water in the valley so that more of it would have a chance to soak in instead of just soaking very quickly into the, uh, the Yellow River and the, the related river systems. And then we also have to remember that this was the authoritarian government of China that was carrying this project out. So, you know, there was some persuading, there was some sharing of the vision, but in truth, it was less about that than it was about the government saying, this is the law. These are the new policies. You won't be grazing here anymore. So the government did make clear that the new policies were in place, and they also compensated the farmers so that they could keep their livestock pinned up and just buy grain from elsewhere to feed to them. And then another big part of the project was designating certain hills and gullies as permanent ecological zones. So these were protected from grazing or farming permanently. Any slope of more than 25 degrees was determined unsuitable for agriculture because whatever crops could be grown on those slopes would be worth less than the ecosystem function that would have been lost. So all of that land, by government mandate, was protected. And policies were put into place that also banned tree cutting in many areas and free-ranging of livestock. But they also emphasized land use rights of the locals. Here's Jürgen Fogel once again. And the first key policy I'm, I would talk about is the land use rights for the farmers. If the farmers build a terrace and they don't own that terrace, they will not take care of it, they will not invest in the terrace, and it will wash out the first time there is a major thunderstorm, and it's a failure. So what we have done and what we focused on together over the past 10 years is getting these policies right and implementing them on the ground, not on paper, but in the village, village by village. Every household in this project has received a long-term land use contract for every single piece that was invested in this project. Every terrace that you see, every tree planting area is contracted to a household and they are responsible for it. The locals were actually enlisted to help survey the land and to ensure that it was divided up fairly and transparently. Everyone knew who owned which terrace and which hill, and the people were also paid for their labor during this restoration project. So these were all powerful incentives. The people understood that they were the direct beneficiaries of the improved land and of the new policies that were implemented to make it all sustainable. They had both rights and responsibilities. Here's John Liu. In order to help the local people make the transition, the Lus Plateau Watershed Rehabilitation Project hired them to implement new practices. Although historically, the people's destructive behavior had been the cause of much of the degradation, the project made their work central to restoring ecological balance. In short, the people became the solution. 
Of course, a long-term land use contract is quite a ways off from every man having his own vine and fig tree, but it's a start. It's a move toward ownership, and it created accountability. And under the Chinese Communist Party, that's probably the most that people could have hoped for. And with the Lust Plateau Watershed Rehabilitation Project, it was enough to properly incentivize the work, and the people got on board. So the plan to restore the Lust Plateau was immense in scale, but it was all relatively low-tech. They planted the trees on hundreds of square miles of hilltops, by hand mostly, and just with some simple machinery. And they dug large terraces in the steep slopes, mainly by hand. And they added organic material to the soil in places. It was all done without advanced technology, but it was undoubtedly one of the most ambitious development projects ever undertaken. And the results were dramatic. Within a decade, the project directed about $500 million to making this happen, and they focused all of that on an area about the size of Belgium. And the project succeeded in reshaping the devastated gullies. It succeeded in terracing the land so that it could provide flat fields that are productive for crops and grazing in a sustainable way. And since it all happened over such a vast area, it affected ecosystem health. With all the hats and belts and shoes that they built, it has once again become actively part of a functional hydrological cycle. Water is absorbed in the plants and in organic matter in the soil. Evaporation has increased and humidity has increased, and the whole system has begun to perpetuate itself. And of course, that yields strong crops and better grazing conditions. So both the economy and the ecology were greatly improved for the people of the Lust Plateau. Here's Jürgen Vogel. We've always looked at this as a dual objective, which has to be achieved simultaneously. You cannot achieve one without the other. And so the project had to be balanced. And that's what we have, I think, achieved. And this is the reason why this has become so successful. And the scale of all this is just hard to comprehend. It proved that it is possible to rehabilitate large-scale, destroyed ecosystems, including restoring ecosystem function that had been lost over vast areas and over long durations of time. And of course, the restored area isn't just some untamed forest or grassland. Some of it is protected in its uh, naturally restored forms, but the majority is used by people for farming, livestock, and countless other kinds of business and life. But it's now done in ways that respect the nature. And it's done in ways that keeps the ecological function humming along the way it was designed to. And that means there's water in the soil, and so much more food is now produced in this area. It also means the Yellow River is looking considerably less yellow, and flooding has become rare. Dust storms no longer originate from this area. So this restoration is really benefiting people all across China and even beyond their borders. When you see the before and after images from John Liu's documentary, it is truly staggering. 
not just the difference that people made, but the scale that it happened on. We'll include a link in the show notes for today's program to the documentary that he made so that you can take a look at those images if you'd like to. But I'd like to read a few statements here from some of the locals, some of the local residents there about just what they witnessed with the transformation brought about by this project. One farmer said, Before, my dream was just to live in a brick house. But after 20 years, to see such changes is unimaginable. Now, it's as if our dreams couldn't keep up with the changes. Another said, The farmland has completely changed. It's hard to recognize this place now. Before, we didn't have enough income for electricity. Now we have electricity and running water. We can grow more and more crops. It's really a big change. Another man gave the documentarians a tour of his orchard, showing his various types of fruit trees and just beaming and discussing how hard he and his family uh, worked to keep the trees all strong. And he also talked about how profitable that fruit is. So the change has been dramatic. Barren soil has returned to lush, verdant land. An area the size of Belgium was transformed from an exhausted, depleted, barren desert into a vast oasis of flora and fauna and fertile farmland. This was one of the largest, if not the largest, regreening project in history. The desert blossomed, and it broke the cycle of poverty that the people of the Lust Plateau had been stuck in for generations. The people have an opportunity now to build a future for themselves and their families. And of course, this has implications far beyond the Lust Plateau. Here's John Liu once again. The implications of the rehabilitation of the Lust Plateau go far beyond China's borders. In many countries, there are large degraded ecosystems and millions of poor people. As we learned on the Lust Plateau, the reasons for both the poverty and the degradation are often simply destructive human behavior. And wherever on earth this happens, it will result in the loss of ecological function and the loss of fertility, productivity, and income for the local people. And of course, it also has many downstream impacts with flooding and drought and dust storms and so on. So by applying the lessons that were learned in this colossal restoration project at the Lust Plateau, experts believe we could restore numerous other ecosystems and improve life for billions of people. Now, there are some areas that would require even more human intervention and help than the Lust Plateau needed. Some desert regions that are so arid that people need to use techniques that are even more resourceful and creative. To learn more about one of these, we'll go now to this segment by Mihailo Zekic. The Sinai Peninsula, the land bridge connecting Egypt with Asia, is an arid, sparsely populated desert. The region historically had such a reputation for harshness that the Bible refers to it as a wilderness. But does the Sinai need to stay such a desolate wilderness? Does any desert, for that matter? A team in the Netherlands doesn't think so. Meet the Weathermakers, a squad of environmentalists, inventors, engineers, and others that plan to transform the Sinai from a harsh desert into a green paradise. 
One of the co-founders of the Weathermakers is Thies van der Hoeven, a Dutch former industrial worker who has a background in dredging or underwater excavation. Malik Bukebus, Dema's Egyptian representative, came into contact with van der Hoeven. The Egyptian government met Bukebus and asked him about the likelihood of restoring Lake Bardawil, a lagoon on the northern Sinai Peninsula. Way back when, the lagoon was 65 to 131 feet deep. But today, because of evaporation and other causes, the lagoon's depth is only a bit over 9 feet at its deepest point. Egypt wants to dredge the lagoon and cut channels to give it better access to the sea to increase its water levels. This would decrease the lagoon's salt levels and temperature while increasing its depth, which could increase fish stocks. Van der Hoeven was intrigued by the project, but he wasn't just satisfied with restoring one lagoon. He had bigger ambitions. Lake Bardawil isn't the only part of the region that needs restoring. The Sinai Peninsula itself is, for the most part, a barren wasteland. Van der Hoeven had a vision of an environmental project that would re-green the northern Sinai. But what does he mean by re-greening? Wasn't the Sinai always a barren desert? Historically, it used to be less barren. Records from the 1,500-year-old Greek Orthodox St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai reveal harvests of wood in the region. Even cave paintings from the region depict significant vegetation. What if that could all be brought back? Here is what van der Hoeven said about this. If anybody doubts that the Sinai can be regreened, then you have to understand that landing on the moon was once thought unrealistic. They didn't lay out a full, detailed roadmap when they started, but they had the vision. And step by step, they made it happen. Van der Hoeven suspects that the desertification of the Sinai was the result of human activity. When men deforest a land, the soil holds less water than before. This not only stops water from sticking around, but it creates runoff, meaning that the water takes the nutrients and other vital components from the soil with it wherever it ends up. Lake Bardawil is one of those places where the water eventually ends up in the Sinai, dragging a lot of silt with it. The solution, then, is to bring back the greenery. If you bring back large, self-sustaining areas of greenery, you'll bring back the water. Vanderhoeven co-founded the Weathermakers in 2017 to get this project started with two of his friends. One of the first challenges was to figure out how to get a lot of pure water into the desert for a sustainable period of time. For this, the Weathermakers turned to John Todd, an American marine biologist. He's invented what he calls an eco-machine, and it may provide the answer to the Weathermaker's problems. What is an eco-machine? It is basically several large barrels connected together through piping stored in a greenhouse. Each barrel is filled with a mini-ecosystem. Some of the mini-ecosystems contain algae. Others have bacteria. Some have larger organisms like plants, insects, and even fish. 
They're basically pawns in a barrel. Water is transported from barrel to barrel. As the water goes through the barrels, the organisms in the barrels purify the water, and barrel by barrel, the water becomes cleaner. This could be done to treat, say, sewage water and make it healthy again. In cooperation with Mr. Todd, the weathermakers developed the Eco-Oasis, an upgraded eco-machine that can convert seawater into clean, fresh water, water packed with nutrients that can bring life to soil. But how do you use the water to re-green an area? If you were to dump the water all at once, it wouldn't do much. The weathermakers took Todd's design and ran with it. Greenhouses, of course, trap heat. In the arid Sinai Peninsula, the environment would be hotter than in other places. To source the water, the weathermakers would use seawater from the Sinai's coastline and use the eco-oasis's filtration system to convert it into fresh water. In the greenhouse, the water inside the barrels would evaporate and condensate on the top of the structure. A network of gutters would then collect the water, which would send a constant steady supply of water to the ground. Now, imagine having a hundred of these eco-oases set up in a given area and leave them there, constantly giving gentle, moderate amounts of artificial rain to the parched soil for five years. You'll get plant growth. Lots and lots of plant growth. And eventually, these little mini-habitats can become self-sustaining. The eco-oases can then be packed up and moved to another location in the desert. The weathermakers plan on using these eco-oases over and over again until, hopefully, most of the northern Sinai Peninsula is greened, teeming with life. What would have been a barren wasteland would be converted into a beautiful paradise. Time willing, the fruits of the weathermakers' ambitions will be known, perhaps literally, with plants bearing fruit on what was once barren land. This topic of re-greening the deserts is an exciting one, partly because there are just so many degraded places to rehabilitate. Almost one-third of the world's landmass is desert. That's according to the technical definition of an area that receives less than 10 inches of rain per year. And we may think that deserts are all sweltering sand dunes, you know, the Lawrence of Arabia kind of landscape. And that is often the case, but not always. They can also be cold, such as the Antarctic Desert. That one is about 5.5 million square miles, making it technically the largest desert on the planet. But even if we narrow the definition to just the more traditional desert, those you know dried up places that lie mostly between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, those make up about 14% of the world's land area. And a great deal of that is the result of man's short-sighted exploitation of the land. Even if you look back just 125 years ago, only 9% of the landmass was desert. So that was about 5 million square miles. But now we're up to 8 million square miles of subtropical and other nonpolar deserts. So deserts have grown a great deal in the last 125 years. And the amount of desert on Earth 
is growing every day by about 40 square miles. Some of this happens naturally, but much of it results from human activity, like slash-and-burn agriculture and overgrazing, as was the case with the Lust Plateau. But the Bible tells us that a time is on the horizon when these areas will be healed. Isaiah 35 verse 1 says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. The deserts will blossom like lush gardens. We'll have functional ecosystems on a planetary scale. The next verse says, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. So this is about a time when what happened on the Lust Plateau, and much more really, will happen all over the world. The earth will burst forth with joy and abundance and singing. So it's just a tremendously exciting vision of the future. Mr. Gerald Flurry, who hosts the Key of David program here on KPCG, has written quite a lot about this astounding future in his book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. There's an entire chapter in there devoted to this topic, and this is a book that we send out at no charge. So if you take a look at the show notes for today's episode on SoundCloud, or if you go to thetrumpet.com and click on the Literature tab, you can order your free copy of Isaiah's End Time Vision there. And the astounding thing is that we now know from experience that this kind of regreening, even on a huge scale, can happen quickly if we apply the techniques that have already been found to be effective. Here's a clip from Dr. Jeff Lawton. He's an Australian permaculture consultant who has worked on a number of regreening projects around the globe. I, I think it, we're finding surprisingly quick if, if we apply the best design we can and, and go straight into earthworks and, and water harvesting and, and mass species plan out. Within three years, you're starting to see dramatic effects, recharging of the water cycles, rehydration, diversity starts to increase on its own. All kinds of optimistic things happen. So within three years, if the right techniques are implemented, the land can be regreened. Areas return to being self-sufficient ecosystems. No outside mulch needs to be brought in, no artificial fertilizer is needed, and vegetative cover is firmly rooted. Soon after, trees begin to grow tall, and a canopy can form. And of course, people can prevent large trees from overtaking the whole area. If there are parts that are designed for crops or open areas or housing or other purposes. But the desert can blossom like the rose. And we know that this will happen on a global scale in the near future. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode of The Sun Also Rises. Thanks very much to Mihailo Zekic for his contribution to the show today. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to send your comments and questions to tsar at kpcg.fm. And I'll leave you today with one final quote from Dr. John Liu. Well, this is a change. This is amazing. If you can take a place that has been destroyed over thousands of years 
and bring it back to life. This is pretty astonishing. It took a long time to degrade, but actually the restoration is going much faster. Now you can see in 25 years, it's completely different. And this is done by ordinary people. This is huge. Thank you.